Hey everyone, John Mark Comer here. Welcome to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. Today we have a very special one-off long-form interview with Jonathan Tremaine Thomas from Ferguson, Missouri. As a part of Black History Month, and more importantly, as a part of the very long journey that we and so many other churches are on toward race and justice. Jonathan, or JT as he's also known, is an artist, activist, pastor, preacher, producer, entrepreneur with deep roots in the church and in the social justice story. He is a fifth generation preacher, as well as the grand nephew of the civil rights activist and music legend, Dr. Nina Simone, who I believe was called the High Priestess of Soul. He has a master's degree in intercultural studies from Fuller Theological Seminary and has served for many years in minority communities and under-resourced neighborhoods, most recently in Ferguson. He was personified as Tony in the 2006 Sony Pictures film The Second Chance, and he's been acting ever since. He's the president of Uproot Media and the founder of the nonprofit that we're about to talk about, Civil Righteousness. Not civil rights, but civil righteousness. More on that in a minute. He self-identifies as a missionary and a prayer mobilizer. We were following his kind of civil righteousness work and his template all through 2020 and over the summer with our pray tests, if you remember that, where for eight nights we went around to different places of pain in our city where there was an act of injustice or violence toward a black or brown or minority community and we would lament and confess and repent and pray and stand in silence and in solidarity. All of that was based on his work as well as pray on MLK if you were around for that day where hundreds of us were on a silent prayer walk down MLK on that just really momentous moment in our city's history. If I had to describe Jonathan in a sentence, I would say he is a black spiritual leader who is following the Sermon on the Mount as his map to race and justice. The following interview is a bit long, I forewarn you that, but I would really encourage you to break it up over a few sessions or commutes back and forth from work or laundry or runs or whatever, or just sit down and give your full attention to it. It gets nothing but better as it goes along. Here is the interview with Jonathan Tremaine Thomas. Jonathan Tremaine Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we are beyond grateful. I know you're on a writing break right now and time is precious. And what a gift you are as a soul, as a human being who is fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. What a gift you are as a voice, not just in Ferguson, but to America as a whole and really to the world as a whole. And in particular, what a gift you are in this, I hate to call it a subject material because it's not a subject material, this reality of race and justice and how does all of that intersect with the gospel. And we share a double name, so we have at least that in common. <laughs> and I think we share a deep and burning passion for the kingdom of God and what does the kingdom of God have to say and, and what role does it play in the healing and the renewal of our nation in particular after the last year, you know, and as you know, our city all through 2020 and now into 21 has been on the front page of pretty much every major news outlet in the world for, um, you know, over a hundred days straight of protests that turned into riots 
over systemic racism and a deep kind of opening of pain um, that I know is not unique at all to our city. You're in Ferguson. You're right at the center of that pain point. And I was introduced to your work, I think, early last summer by a few of our elders and my wife, actually, who were all like podcasting you and all like, you have to hear this guy and his perspective is is beyond unique. And like, um, it was just, and when I started to listen it was like, to borrow an overused example, it was like water for a soul. You know, it was such a gift. Your voice, your wisdom, your perspective, your heart has been um, like one of the main, if not the main people that I have been listening to over the last year. And so we're just really grateful for those of you that are new to Jonathan Tremaine Thomas and his voice and his work. Um, you know, what I love about you is you don't fit into the category of left or right. And I, I think we share that a little bit in common. And so whether you are listening as a Democrat or Republican, uh, as someone who's on the left side of the political aisle or the right, whether you're a Portlander in the urban core listening from somewhere very different, I think all of us have a ton to learn from Jonathan. So we're really grateful that you're here. Okay, first, before we get you to talk about all the stuff, and I want you to tell stories about your work in Ferguson, first, just tell us a a little bit about you and your family line. Like you, if I understand the story, you come from a long family line of both preachers, I think with your grandmother on one side, I think fifth generation preacher, if the story is true, and like social activists. And you have a, a great aunt who was, is a leader in the R&B movement and like all the stuff. So would you just give us a little bit of like how, like your family history and, and you know, I think of my friend Alan Scott who says your destiny is written in your history. History. And there's something to that for you. Just tell us a little bit about where you come from and how you come to this work. Wow. Well, you know, a- absolutely. I- I'm so honored to be here. And um, I am so aware of the fact that the only reason that I am on this podcast with you is because of those who have gone before me. Um, you know, yeah. this, I believe it was King David who said, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And obviously, he was talking about the boundary lines and, and kind of the, the surrounding nature of God and protecting him. But he was also talking about the lines of his inheritance. And, and so, you know, my family line, um, uh, my great, great, great grandparents were, um, were slaves and, uh, they were uh, a mixture on both my mom's side and my dad's side of native American and, uh, African. And, um, so the, the legacy of faith that came from the uh, enslaved, my enslaved ancestors, there was something uh, that was cultivated in them in the, the suffering, through the suffering of slavery, which, of course, biblically, we see uh, that suffering produces uh, character or perseverance and perseverance, yeah. character and character, yeah. hope. And so, um, so this uh, legacy of of uh, preachers that began really in enslaved. And then after abolition, uh, they began to travel to uh, former slave plantations, which were then, uh, you know, sharecropper fields and begin to carry the gospel all through the deep South. And then my great grandmother, um, who I was so blessed to know during the first 10 years of my life, she was still living. Wow. Uh, yeah. She must have been pretty old by that point. Uh, yeah, she was super old. She, um, she actually died right before her 100th birthday. Um, wow. But she would, 
she lived and could tell stories about uh, her her uh, parents and grandparents who were enslaved. And so, um, you know, to for me to be a, a young man under 40 and to have had a relationship with someone who can still describe to you uh, what uh, life in you know, basically post antebellum right after the after slavery had been abolished. Uh, that just goes to show you how close to it we were, but uh, I'm probably or wow. probably getting too far ahead of our conversation. But, no, this is great. Yeah, you know, thank you. But I was just deeply impacted uh, by even her desire as a pioneer. She was ordained uh, as a as a female minister in the Christian Methodist Episcopal denomination, and wow. she said, "Lord, uh, if you can use a mother, will you use me?" And he said, "Yes." And so. She became a really a revivalist. She would do tent meetings um, in these former sharecropper fields in the South, which were also former slave uh, plantations. And um, and everywhere she went, her and her husband John Divine Wayman, um, God would move, and people got saved, and churches got established. And uh, wow, she carried all of her kids with her. She was an apostle, man. More than a mother, she was an apostle. She really was. Um, and, and uh, one of the uh, children that she uh, kind of drug with her to these tent revivals uh, was uh, really a savant, um, but they didn't have that language back then. But uh, she, heard the, she heard Mozart on the radio when she was four years old and sat down at a, compute, at a, at a piano and, and played almost perfectly what she had just heard. And um, so... Uh, she went on to be kind of picked up by uh, a wealthy white lady who saw the talent and paid for her to be sent to New York to be trained at Juilliard. Uh, and there's a really long story around that and a, uh, an interesting, really mesmerizing story. But the bottom line is she wanted to become the first black classical pianist, uh, but that translated into jazz and blues. And she instead became uh, a jazz legend, a music legend, a civil rights activist and civil rights musician who gave voice to really black angst uh, mm. in our nation and pioneered in a lot of different ways. But her name, she's known as, as Nina Simone uh, now. And so she uh, is, is part of our family legacy. So I've seen kind of our history, so many other uh, clergy in my family um, and other artists and entertainers, but I've kind of seen that lineage, that calling to be a cultural prophet, but even more than that, to be a, uh, a real voice uh, for the kingdom of God, kind of seen those two lineages and, and callings converge uh, in my generation, in our family. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, so keep going. Tell us how you got from, you know, your rich heritage of both social activism and preaching to the work that you're up to now in Ferguson and beyond. And I'll ask you a little bit more about civil righteousness in just a minute, but just tell us kind of how, how, how do you come to the work that you right now give your life to? Yeah. You know, um, growing up, I grew up in a very, um, racially polarized or ethnically polarized, a small rural North Carolina town. And, um, you know, having, parents who grew up in the Jim Crow South, uh, and those memories being very, uh, visceral for them. Um, and you know, the, the, the dynamics of the small town that I grew up in, um, were 
were very similar to what they grew up in, just without the legislative backing. Uh, mm. So um, issues and conversations surrounding how to conduct myself as a young black man, and then uh, specifically and more specifically as uh, as a smart <laughs> young uh, African-American. Right. You know, my dad had really high standards. He, um, he was very uh, hardened by his experiences, meaning the first 20 some years of his life uh, were spent in a world where, you know, he could be lynched. Uh, he could be, he, he witnessed friends being hooked to the back of pickup trucks and, and drugged through the streets. He uh, had crosses burned in his yard, the whole deal. And that was going on even through wow. some of my childhood. Um, so he, at 14, um, worked in the textile mills uh, while also completing high school. And by the time he was 21, he had earned enough money to, uh, to have a home built, a three-bedroom, two-bath house. And he was the first black man in our county uh, who had ever had a new home constructed. Um, and so- wow. He broke through some barriers, and in order to ensure that we also uh, were set up for success, he had really high, made a real demand on us academically and and character-wise. You know, his philosophy was you have to uh, not only prove that you belong in the academically gifted classes or that you belong with, you know, the majority culture, but you have to, you have to be better. You know, he, he just was really, um, really uh, intense about ensuring that we had no obstacles uh, in our way. And I say that because that means our house was often filled with conversation between his hardworking kind of blue-collar mentality and then my mom's legacy, which is where Aunt Nina and, and the clergy were. Um, there was always this, this conversation about uh, about race and about, uh, ethnicity. And, um, and so at 12 years old, I really had a deep burden where I began to think deeply, uh, about the question of why, you know, this existential question that a lot of not only African-Americans, but minorities in general, and I would say humans beyond, uh, ethnicity have this, uh, longing on the inside to find the, the, the answer to the why question. And, right. you know, I kind of began to, to ask, Lord, if you are who I'm learning that you are and who the people at church shout about that you are, um, then, then if you were, if you are good, then where were you in slavery? Like, why, why has our people been right. treated this way? And, um, so I began to wrestle with those questions at a young age and, um, it, it carried through various uh, other periods of time in my life, in college and, and, and others, as I kind of went into a personal identity struggle and, and questions of what does it mean to be black and what are people's expectations of me as a six foot four uh, black man with big hands and big feet? You know, why is it that it's automatically assumed that I must be uh, my my primary desire must be to be in the NBA, you know, like just questions like that, that I'm like, right. man, uh, uh, what is this? And so all this to say, um, the Lord made it very clear when a young man uh, in college, when I was in college, uh, a young man who looked like me uh, tried to rob me. And um, during the robbery, 
uh, which should have lasted about 40 seconds. Some things happened and we ended up having a conversation and the 40 seconds turned into four hours. And uh, I ended <laughs> up kidding, leading him to the Lord. And <laughs> yeah, I ended up leading him to the Lord. And uh, I felt like the Lord said very clearly, he said, you'll do this for the rest of your life. You'll love the guns out of their hands. No and, way. Yeah. And, and this guy, he looked, he was the same build as me, same complexion. And I knew that the only difference between he and I was that I had found the love of God, you know, um, that Jesus had rescued me and helped me answer the why question, but he still had those questions. And, um, and so I went uh, into, became a full-time missionary, uh, s- kind of started in Nashville, Tennessee, working in a community where the average income was $4,000 a year. It was a, a gang, uh, a really ga- heavily gang involved community uh, and um, was serving in that community and doing kind of conflict resolution between, you know, the, the warring uh, gang factions in that community. And it was really there that I began to lay hold of this um, sense and understanding of the power of biblical peacemaking and peacemaking uh, or, or peace in and of itself as a supernatural manifestation of the presence of God and peace as something that we as believers are unique stewards of. Um, and, uh, that kind of translated years of working some 13 years later, uh, of working with, uh, and in communities where violence is kind of the, the, the norm, um, Ferguson happened. And when Ferguson broke out, um, the Lord in so many miraculous ways and powerful ways, uh, called us to, uh, to move our family from, where we were, which at that time was Indianapolis and moved to Ferguson, uh, to plant and really do our, our part to become, uh, peacemakers and reconcilers in this generation. So you just moved right into, I think of that, there's that line from a British theologian I love, you know, and he says the church's vocation is to be in prayer at the place the world is in pain. And, you know, you were not just in prayer, you were in body at one of the many places, but really an epicenter of where our nation is in pain. So tell us a little bit about, um, I know that somewhere in that timeline, you started a nonprofit called Civil Righteousness, which is a great name. And reading off your kind of vision statement, let me just read a line to those of you listening. He writes this, inequity demands a civil rights movement but iniquity demands a civil righteousness movement. So would you just unpack that for us? Tell us a little bit about kind of the the meaning behind the name of your nonprofit and then what you do through civil righteousness and on the ground. Yeah, you know, um, the the meaning or or that phrase really came out of a moment um, where as I was seeing, you know, post Ferguson, um, repeated, uh, obviously police, uh, and civilian encounters that would result in the death of, uh, these black civilians. And, um, you know, I think we've seen this steady crescendo, um, really, I would say even dating back to 2008 when president Obama was running for the presidency, we begin to see glimpses glimpses 
of a resurgence of the conversation of uh, the fact that, hey, there, there's, there's some things that have not been resolved from our history. Um, and so I, I began to notice the, this reemergence of, uh, of kind of new justice movements or uh, a new um, uh, grown for justice that we have not seen since the 60s. And I was in a moment where uh, I was actually on stage and I, I was speaking and I said, just in a, in a moment of, of inspiration under the power of the Holy Spirit, I said, we do not need another civil rights movement because we've had those. We need a righteousness movement because rights deals with our externals, but righteousness deals with our internals. And we cannot have another movement where we see great change externally, but no change internally. And that's really, um, and, and I, I think I dropped the or coined the phrase civil righteousness at that moment. And after that kind of impromptu moment, people begin to reach out and say, so tell us more about civil righteousness. What is it? And so really it's been kind of a journey of saying, okay, God, actually, what is civil righteousness? And, and so ultimately when we look and we think about it, when we think about the reform that Jesus brought and the groan of uh, the culture at the time, you know, when they were looking for Jesus to come, when the Jews were, were looking for and reaching for a Messiah initially, they're living under, uh, I mean, immense governmental oppression. You're talking right. about the power of Rome, the most powerful uh regime to, to exist on the face of the earth. They have conquered and conquered and conquered. And now the heavy hand of Rome has the Jewish, uh, the Hebrew people under great oppression. So they're looking for a liberator and Jesus comes on a donkey. They're expecting him to come and to wage physical war and to behead everyone, you know, but he comes and he says, no, I'm going to wage war on the internals first. And he emphasizes uh, the iniquity of the heart, not just the transgression of the law, you know, and I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm looking at the justice and the emphasis on internals that Jesus brings, which is what upset the Pharisees. It upset the Sadducees. It upset everyone because he, he saw and he, and he brought the case for justice into a realm and an arena that we are not naturally predisposed to bring, to bring uh, uh, the case. And so and so civil righteousness really began with this idea that, you know, if we're going to bring justice the Jesus way, then we have to look at how Jesus brought it and we have to begin to major in what he majored in. And yes, love your neighbor. Yes, serve the poor. Yes, all these external things that we have to do, which are, which are the, the outworking of righteousness but to be fully aligned and be fully right and just according to heaven's uh, uh, perspective, then we have to align with righteousness in our internals. What are our thoughts and our intentions and the motives? What are the unspoken things that we, uh, that we carry in our heart towards the other? Um, and so that's where the phrase inequity demands a civil rights movement. We have to, because of inequity in the external spaces, um, it requires, and it required the historic civil rights movement, uh, but iniquity, which is where transgressions out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, 
uh, our actions flow from this internal, this deep well in our bellies, or even our words. And, and uh, from that, in order to deal with that, we have to have righteousness, which is what the Bible tells us exalts a nation. You know, I mean, that's beautiful. Thank you. I'm coming from a, you know, coastal city that is millennial dominant and hyper progressive. I'm not, but the the city as a whole. And it, it seems to me, and I would love for you to agree or disagree with this, that there's a generational shift here that a lot of kind of Gen X and millennials and Gen Z are, are reacting and maybe even overreacting against an older generation for whom the emphasis was kind of all on the internal. In particular, I'm thinking of kind of American evangelicalism that had a very high category for personal sin and little to no category for, you know, theologians called institutional sin, you know, we would call it systemic sin or whatever. And in biblical theology from, you know, Genesis three to the right, you know, it's very clear that sin is not just individual. It's not just a matter of the heart that, you know, you put a bunch of you know, hearts that are torn and bent and warped and in need of healing and saving, you put them all together and they start to create structures and systems that then have both an internal and an external like outworking of sin. So it seems like there's been a a kind of a generation-wide movement away from that toward, hey, we have to deal with the systemic evil. We can't just go to church and pray and talk about, you know, the heart. We have to, like, deal with the structures and the systems in society, which I'm all for, but I kind of feel like, and I would love to hear your perspective on this, our generation has now just gone to the other direction, and now everything is about the external. Little to nothing is said about the internal. The heart posture of the world at large has nothing to do with Jesus' radical ethic of enemy love and peacemaking and reconciliation repentance. And, you know, you hear people say these beautiful things like, let's end racism in our generation. And a part of me is like, wants to cheer that on. And I'm well aware of the distinction between prejudice and racism and, you know, the intersections of power. I'm happy to go along with those definitions. But part of me thinks just as a, as a follower of Jesus with a robust theology of sin, like that's kind of like saying, let's end fear in our generation. Or let's end greed right. in our generation. Or let's end lust in our generation. Or let's end lying in our generation. I'm like, well, that's great. But is that, is that a, is that a Christian worldview? So I would love to hear you. I mean, what do you, what are you seeing? And again, I'm coming from a millennial dominant progressive city, but what are you seeing in that space? No, absolutely. You know, I, I've said this before that, you know, justice is the buzzword and righteousness is a byword. And it, we have this, um, albeit there, there, there are many different interpretations of what social justice is, but there's, uh, there is a baseline of understanding if someone says social justice, um, but there's no baseline of understanding if someone says social righteousness. What does wow. it look like for, for the economies of the principles of the kingdom of God? Um, what does that look like when the precepts of the kingdom of God weigh upon the, the culture of the economies of the world? Uh, in, a, in a city, in a nation, in a governmental system, I think, so the pursuit of this ethic, you know, it's just really interesting. There's, there's the, a widespread pursuit of this justice uh, ethic, this, mor- this morality, right? This, let, this humanity, this dignification of person that we're seeing 
again, as you stated so well, um, in the structural and the institutional and the legislative, you know, all the tangible things. Right. But really what it reveals is even in, even within the church, a lack of our understanding of the psychological, the, the, the spiritual and the supernatural. I mean, um, the holistic pursuit of justice is the only pursuit of justice. Um, if it's, if it's too internal and it, and there's no fruit in the external, then it's not whole. And if it's too external and there's no internal, uh, reality, then it's, it's very incomplete and it will be unsatisfactory, which is ultimately what I think we see is that the goal line of something, uh, substantial in our current, particularly I'd say millennial and Gen X, uh, uh, understanding of justice is we have to see a tangible and immediate outcome. You know, we have to see a law pass. We have to see someone voted into office. The, the finish line is public policy instead of the finish line also being, uh, or the, a real finish line being a, a radical, uh, emotional, mental, psychological shift and cultural shift within a community. Wow. So you're tying together, am I hearing you right, that you're tying together justice and righteousness and saying the secular kind of world is all about justice, but what it's missing is the addendum, not addendum, the addition of righteousness. I remember my first ever class in seminary with my seminary professor who one of his deep passions was the biblical theology of justice. And I literally remember every single class for a year, him just drilling down Sadak and Mishpat in Hebrew as we were in Old Testament overview and justice and righteousness and how the two are never separated. And they all almost always in, you know, this in the, in the, Secular conversation, it's all about justice and social justice. In the biblical dialogue and literature, it's all about Sadak and Mishpat, about justice and righteousness and the way the two commingle and work together and mutually reinforce each other. Is that what I'm hearing you say? And that 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 that's what we have to get back to. And without the righteousness, then we're we're not going to get over the finish line. Well, the the authority of the kingdom of heaven. The very throne room of God, Psalm 89, 14 says justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. So it's the pillar. They are the very, you know, Sadak and Mishpat, Mishpat are, are the foundation of his governance. And of course, Isaiah, the prophet sees Jesus before he comes years before he comes. And he see, he sees him and says of the increase of his government, government and of right. peace. There will be no end. So the government of God, the, the leadership, the laws of God and the, 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 the value system of the kingdom of heaven on the earth must rest upon justice and righteousness, justice with righteousness. It's, it's a two-sided, it's one coin, it's one currency with two sides, but the overemphasis of one without the other is, is neither ultimately. Um, and so, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's it's, beautiful. So could you, t okay. Could you tell us some stories? You know, we're talking theology, we're talking high level, which I love. Could you just some, tell us some stories of, 
of what life is like for you, of the work you do, what this looks like, not on a podcast, but on the street, in a church, in a, you know, humdrum meeting room with a few people. Like, tell us stories of of the work you're doing. Absolutely. Well, you know, civil righteousness, our, our mission is to pursue reconciliation and restorative justice through spiritual, cultural, and economic renewal. So um, we start with the spiritual, right? Um, I, I am much more concerned with the church or those who identify as followers of Jesus having a biblical worldview and having a the ability to first of all navigate the culture that we're that we're that we've inherited really um and and the times that we're living in with the ability to have an undef- unoffended heart with the with the ability to navigate through these times with a sense of godly uh Godly wisdom, godly virtue, peace, and the fruits of the Spirit. So I, we spend a lot of time uh, really engaging the church in mm. what I believe are, are basic biblical foundations, things that uh, we see throughout uh, the Scripture, throughout the text, that somehow uh, have been lost, foundations that Jesus set for us um, that, especially in some of the high-level dialogues, it's like, man— we've become really academic and really intellectual about um, racism and about loving your neighbor and serving and all these different things. When in fact, you know, some of these things are basic biblical truths. So I'll just say, you know, we do a lot of trainings. We do a lot of pre COVID. We did a lot of uh, racial reconciliation forums. Um, We did a lot of panel discussions. We would host them. Um, But practically on the ground, starting with here in Ferguson, uh, you know, Ferguson has been in a six-year process since Michael Brown was was killed in August of 2014. Uh, the city was sued by the Department of Justice, and um, they issued a what's called a consent decree, which is a one a really lengthy uh, set of reforms that were issued by the Department of Justice through a, kind of a local commission of leaders from various disciplines and backgrounds who kind of examined all the factors that led up to what happened in Ferguson. And, you know, Ferguson is a microcosm of, of the macro issues and macro reality in America. Um, And so the city's been in a six year process of implementing these reforms. And one of those uh, reforms in, in, in kind of initiatives was uh, looking for an organization or a group of people who would engage the church in the racial equity mission. So we've been doing that locally as well as nationally and abroad as the Lord has opened the door uh, through our through our training. But um, the, the other thing is to create safe spaces for mediated dialogue and mediated interactions between police and civilians. So, you know, a, a real practical thing would be even for me personally uh, to participate in committees. So I, I was a part of a committee for several years called the Neighborhood Policing Steering Committee. And in these meetings, they would be very contentious. You would have uh, civilians who are also activists on one side of the room and police and, and city officials on the other. And these meetings would be so contentious um, 
that I finally realized that we would not get ahead. We couldn't, we couldn't uh, make any, any headway in these meetings without a peacemaker. And again, this is where I realized that peacemaking is really something, a grace that can only be um, uh, initiated or implemented through the disciple of Jesus Christ. And so in these meetings, um, one in particular, I can remember standing up and uh, both sides. As, as a, what did you say, six four or six? As a very, <laughs> yeah, six four. <laughs> yeah, man, when you stand up, the room, I'm sure there's, we all notice. <laughs> well, you know, it's just the, the room was going crazy. Uh, uh, you know, these two sides are, and these are city officials and activists. And I could hear that they were saying the same thing, but they could not hear one another. And, you know, wow. so what I realized is that, you know, the Holy Spirit is the interpreter. He's, he's the translator. You're, you're just, I mean, help paint the picture. You're just sitting there prayerfully, like listening, watching, discerning in the spirit before you stand up. What's that? Right. It, exactly. Yeah. I'm sitting there. I, I'm just watching. I'm listening. I'm hearing one party kind of express their grievances. And then I hear the other party express, you know, their explanation or their response to the grievance. Well, you know, for example, the police officer says, well, we, we stop and frisk because ABCD, but then the activist party says, yeah, but you didn't have to do ABCD the way you did ABCD. And then the police say, well, we did that because we were trained, you know, this is standard across police departments around the nation. We're trained to do ABCD because of these three reasons. Well, what happens is I'm sitting here and it's getting more and more contentious. Uh, voices are getting higher. Things are getting more and more uh, uh, hostile in the room until eventually it's a yelling match. And you're like, this thing's going to go to blows pretty quick unless something happens. And I just feel the Lord uh, prompt me, stand up. And say this, you know, so I stand up, cut through the noise, cut both parties off and, and, and say, okay, from what I hear, party A, meaning activists, you just said ABCD. And the reason why you said that is because you believe this happens and, uh, uh, and this is why it needs to change. And then the police off the police go, uh, or, or then I would interpret for that, for, for that group. So, and then what I heard you say was ABCD and the reason why you do ABCD is because of these three reasons. Is that what you all heard? And suddenly step into this, this mediation type uh, situation where I'm kind of becoming like a translator uh, between both parties. And I'm, and I'm doing my best not to be biased, even though as a human, I am biased, you know, but I, I found that o over the course of time, I began to be, uh, you know, people, if I wasn't at the meeting, both parties would get nervous because they're like, oh, he, he's not here. Um, he, he's the neutral guy. We know if we can't get ahead, he's going to be able to help us hear one another, you know, and that's where I begin to say, this is the role of the church. We've wow. become so deeply embedded in our own biases, our own political positions, our own cultural positions and our own cultural experiences that even though as a black man, I have, I have my own grievances and my own, I could come to that meeting in my own table and the activist group may have said something that I 100% agree with. And I want to throw my, my in, endorsement behind what they just said, 
And that seems like, oh, well, that would be the biblical position. When in fact, we are called to be, uh, to, to live in the culture of the kingdom first, which God hears the grievance of both sides equally, and there's no partiality in him, even, and this is, even if one side is actually the enemy, because Jesus says, bless your enemies. And so there's this, this, there's something about the way of Jesus that we celebrate, but you don't really believe it until it's tested. And I believe generationally, our generation, I I believe culturally, um, our generation is being tested, both black and white, uh, in, in every other ethnicity, both liberal and, and, and conservative. We're being tested in how much our theology actually really match, matches our sociology. Uh, and practically, we are simply as an organization trying to live that out in every way. So we tr- we're training peacemaking and mediation. Uh, and then also we're engaging we're engaging on the front lines as first responders where conflict has happened in, in, in various ways, bringing uh, the presence of God through prayer and through gospel, um, gospel proclamation and peacemaking on the streets in the, the zones of, of conflict. But then beyond that, we know that peace or shalom is wholeness. And so it's beyond just one moment. It's beyond just a good conversation or a handshake. But we have to begin to bring reformation in our cities. Uh, and we believe that there are kingdom blueprints and architecture for addressing uh, economic uh, disparities and, and, and cultural disparities in communities. So we're doing that through entrepreneurship and various forms of innovation. Unbelievable. And you, like through all through last summer, you know, when, and right now I know you're in winter, like I, I got stuck in actually the, uh, Minnesota, St. Paul, Minneapolis or whatever airport, uh, not that long ago. And I realized why there's not a lot of protests going on right now. It's because it was like negative 10 degrees and 10 feet of snow. I'm like, oh, wow, this is a little different than my city. But all through last summer, I know that you, I mean, you were literally right in the middle of these protests and more than protests. My wife at one point said, you have to see this. And, you know, there was some video on her phone of, of you right in the middle of like all this emotion and angst and this guy just kind of screaming at you slash weeping and you just being there as a peacemaker praying like, like, what's that like? What's that felt experience? Not a lot of people have the courage to be in that spot doing what you were trying to do. Yeah. Well, you know, I would say that, you know, I've seen over the years. So for the last six years, um, I've been in many, many different uh, cities and environments where civil unrest was taking place. And uh, in fact, I was interviewed by uh, one magazine uh, writer and I, I, I did not love the the title that she gave me, but she says, you know, this preacher is a is a, a fire chaser or a, a conflict zone chaser. You know, she kind of uh, framed it as just looking for the trouble and going there. And at first, I was a little offended by that, and then I'm going, no, actually, I think that's kind of, I think on some at some level, you know, that's not my motivation, but at some level. Um, when I think of peacemaking, I'm going the pre the prerequisite for making peace, which is a beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
the prerequisite for being revealed as a son of God is that the, the, those who have been adopted into the family of God, they make peace wherever they go. And the prerequisite for making peace is that there has to be conflict. If there's no mm. conflict, there's no need to make peace. And so, whereas the first response of uh, many people might be, well, it's bad downtown Portland, don't go. Uh, I think the response of the believer should be, it will only get worse if we don't go. Um, yeah. Let's run into conflict, not away from it. And so um, that began, uh, it began really in 2014 when I heard the Lord uh, ask me to come and pray in Ferguson. And when that, when we responded to that and I came to Ferguson in, Ferguson in 2014, during the, the worst moment of conflict, um, we experienced just the most miraculous uh, manifestation of the presence of God in the midst of the conflict. And I saw then, and now I've seen it over and over and over and over and over again, I saw atmospheres, entire um, groups of 800 to 1,000 or more people come under the, the weight of the presence of God in a moment in those situations just just from being present, just from being there on the ground mm. and praying and naming Jesus in the atmosphere. Um, I, I won't get into a lot of the, the supernatural kind of, uh, go for it. Uh, we're, we're on, we're on board with you, bro. Go for well, it. Well, you know, pandemonium, pan meaning widespread or across demonium, diamenon being the Greek word, diamenon demon, mm-hmm. uh, pan demon is, demonization, uh, widespread demonic activity. You know, part, part of the, the challenge in our nation, uh, again, I believe even in the church and, and generationally, but particularly here in the West, is that we, we do not understand how intense the spiritual war is and, and how real the realm of the unseen is uh, as it relates to what's happening in the realm of the scene. And so in these environments, there is such an intensity, the clash of two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness is so intense and so real in these environments um, that, you know, I, I think we've tried to engage um, the these tensions in these tense moments and tense atmospheres intellectually instead of understanding that our first arena that God has given the sons and daughters access into the, into the supernatural realm and given us spiritual weapons with which to wield in those environments. And, and I want to be clear in saying that, um, you know, a protest in a protest environment is one thing, but in the midst of the, the protests that have happened in this nation since 2014, there have always been multiple parties with multiple agendas attached to the protest environment. Uh, meaning that even in the historic civil rights movement, you had, you had 
uh, various ideological groups that believed that hated they hated Dr. King's message of nonviolence. They hated the fact that it was rooted in biblical principles. They did not believe in nonviolence, and they believed that the only solution was a violent revolution. And they, at the time, were unable to take what was a fringe ideology, and it was unable to become mainstream because ultimately the message of nonviolence and the biblical principles that the historic civil rights movement were based upon, they, the truth of it won the hour of the day and won the cultural narrative. They were able to mobilize more people. But today, what was fringe has become mainstream. Right. And from, from 2014 to today, um, I have seen on the streets at a grassroots level, the radicalization or the attempted rag- radicalization of the black community um, as various ideological groups with more nefarious agendas have sought to co-opt the pain of the black community. And rather than stand with us for healing or for real change, um, uh, that would, that would mean progressive change. I'm not talking politically progressive. I'm just talking real progress and, 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 and substantial change. There have been groups since 2014 that have co-opted the pain of the black community to to raise up a, a radical agenda among black people and among anyone who would ascribe to those things because they ultimately are anti-authority. They are anti-Christ and they want to establish uh, something in the earth that is ultimately in opposition to the precepts of the kingdom of God. And so because of that, there are spiritual dynamics that have been at work in those environments. And I've stood myself and a, a small team of intercessors. It started with, started with about 40 of us in 2014, um, standing between the police and the activists, uh, worshiping, singing songs, and, uh, and, and basically uh, appealing to God and uh, it started then, and just we noticed that whenever we would leave those environments, it was almost to, to, the, to the hour or to the minute, the moment we would leave, violence would escalate. But when we would show up, violence would decrease. And it was so noticeable that the police began to invite us to places and put us on their frequency and say, hey, we need to get those Jesus people out on the streets because we don't wow. understand why it works. But when they're here, when they're here, violence decreases and when they're not violence, violence increases. And I have, I have a lot of stories. I'm sorry. I've been going into some pretty deep. No, this, this is beautiful. Not, yeah. I haven't really Take been telling the, the, the actual stories, but we have a, a, a vast, almost vault of stories from the front lines where we have seen, we have seen, um, assaults and attacks on cities halted in the name of Jesus in a moment. We've seen, um, we've seen mass salvations. We've seen healings and deliverances happen, um, right in front of police stations. Uh, we've seen anarchists that were looting businesses come into, to encounters with, um, our crew and drop what they had in their hands as conviction from the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And so um, it, it's a real thing, and it has been at times scary. I've had uh, my life threatened a few times, and 
but you know, it, it's, I believe it's the greatest moment, uh, as lawlessness increases in the earth, uh, we're going to have to see the church learn how to engage and go for the harvest in the midst of it. Do you get a lot of hate for this work? You know, like I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people on um, both, you know, kind of sides of the political aisle, those that are on the left and those that are on the right, you know, who don't want peace. And by peace, I don't mean like, hey, let's just pretend like there's no problem and I'll get along. I mean, peace in the scriptural sense of repentance and reconciliation or reparations, whatever you want to call it. I'm, you know, I'm hearing a lot of people saying, we don't, we don't want that. We want revenge. I mean, on Inauguration Day, there was a, uh, a march downtown that was a combination of Antifa and BLM. And literally the front banner had an AK, was a painting of an AK-47 and said, we don't want Biden, we want revenge. And, you know, that, that mindset, which I know is not the majority view for our city, but that it's in the air, it's in the atmosphere. Do you get a lot of, a lot of hate, you know, from both sides f- over this work as, you know, I can only imagine what people from both sides would accuse you of? Absolutely. You and know, and how, do you, how do you deal with it, by the way? Because I'm asking, like, not that we're you, but if we want to follow your example, like, how do we fortify our hearts against the, the manifold accusations that are sure to come? Sure. Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I am... Uh, in, in many circles, uh, canceled by those who, um, believe that, um, our message is too centrist, you know, uh, that reconciliation is, and, and even nonviolence or peace, there are those who genuinely believe that, uh, the civil rights movement was a failure because they believe that no progress has been made. And, the fact that we're still having certain conversations is uh, proof that maybe we should have been more violent. So there's a, there's a growing sense of, of that among some, and we get attacked um, both physically and intellectually by uh, those there. And then on the other side, we get obviously uh, confronted by those who are more conservative, who think that we are, are too radical, (laughs) you know? Um, and I think the reality is in, in the midst of the times, these are, these are radical times. it, It is very hard to find anyone who isn't on the pathway to being radicalized in some measure, whether it's radical conservatism, uh, conservatism, uh, whether it's radical liberalism. Uh, but I think for us, for, for the believer, we have to fight for the radical middle, which does not mean we, we, we have no position and, and that we're not confrontational, uh, on the issues of righteousness, you know, justice issues are ultimately righteousness issues. Um, but I think we have to fight to be radically seated in heavenly places, meaning our identity, our primary identity cannot be in the whatever allegiances and alliances that we've made with, with humanity. Our primary identity cannot be 
our tribal identity. You know, I can't just talk to you today as an African-American man. I am. I'm fully black. I love my blackness, bro, you know. But at the end of the day, I am not primarily a black Christian. I am primarily a son of God first. And I process and must process all the issues of life, death, godliness, justice, righteousness, policy. I have to process all of those issues from that identity first. And even if that means breaking with my earthly tribal identity on on some group think, you know, breaking with my uh, religious affiliated tribal identity. When I say that, I mean breaking with, if the Baptist issue a statement a certain way, then if it's not in alignment with my kingdom identity, then I have to break from that. If, if my Republican or my Democratic allegiances do not align with this kingdom identity, I have to break from it. And, and when that break has happened, um, at least emotionally, from the fear of men and the definitions of men and the perceptions of men, it gives us boldness and confidence to stay the course with conviction um, in the place of revelation that we feel like we have. Um, that moves us to to take the positions that we take. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, wow. Yes. What would you say, I'm hearing a lot of exactly what you articulated, a lot of kind of people saying something like this, the civil rights movement was a failure, you know, um, Dr. King was wrong, Malcolm X was right, Violence is the answer. To speak against it is to join with the oppressor, and violence is the way forward. What would you like? What? How would you respond to that narrative that is increasing in its voice and intensity? Yeah. Well, I I think that what we what we see is is that. The level of offense um, that does come from unhealed wounds, right, and and aggravated wounds. So I, I think we're I think we're dealing with the historic wounding and the trauma, the post yes. post traumatic syndrome that multi generational trauma that's never been repented of by our nation or healed. It's never been repented of, and it's never been healed, and it's because. We have thought that repentance was, we, we've had false finish lines for what repentance was. Hmm. Uh, and we've had false expectations for the mechanisms that we thought would bring healing. So we've had com- commemorative moments. We're in Black History Month. You know, we've, we've, we've elected a, a Black president and now we've elected uh, a, a black female vice president. And we, we do these things we've reached for, uh, we keep reaching for what in Matthew it would call broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so because of these false finish lines, it's produced, um, uh, disappointment, which has aggravated or reopened wounds, um, that were never healed in the first place and passed down generationally. And, and so, you know, the fruits of these ideas 
of 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 violence um this the the virtue signaling um the sense of entitlement it's produced strong delusion uh across the board in, in so many ways um that you know any justice movement that is fueled by anger cannot be sustained it's unsustainable um it ultimately the the fruits that it bear, that it bears in the emotions and in the psyche of those who hold on to um these ideas uh, are self evident depression uh suicidal thoughts uh loss of relationships uh rage obsession you know i'm finding i'm dealing with a lot of young people counseling a lot of uh college age students uh and young adults who threw themselves into justice uh centered movements a few years ago and now they're dealing with the fruits of bitterness that in their physical bodies they're having health issues they're having issues uh psychological issues that um that really speak to the fact that that methodology must not work because every article you read makes you angrier uh and and at the end of the day you know there's chronic fatigue issues that people are dealing with because being angry actually wears you out and so you know i wish i could say that there's a blanket statement just to refute these ideas but i think as as you know for me personally i found real power and value in simply taking it to to a real personal individual level and say okay so how are you doing what what's going on in your heart so you believe that dr king's way didn't work but but when you look at their their videos and see them marching in the streets are they are they yelling in anger or are they singing is there peace do they do they look is there a settled are they settled are they centered do you see peace do you see joy and and if you were to look back at those videos you hear the sound of the historic civil rights movement the sound was not fueled by the the anger of or or the the uh it, yeah there was frustration but it wasn't the spirit of their movement did not produce a uh, greater depression if anything you went to a march that Dr King held and you felt more joy you know there was a sense of of peace there was a sense of of hope we shall overcome one day and so that's where again the righteousness issue comes in and uh the question has to be asked you know what is the fruit of what you're doing is it producing love right. joy peace patience uh kindness gentleness cuz i'm not hearing you say at all that the anger is unjustified you're saying the opposite no it's multi-generational trauma a lack of repentance across our nation it, i'm hearing you say you know james the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of god Absolutely. and it, it it doesn't get you where you want to go a a soul in a society of justice and righteousness is that is that what i'm hearing you say not that, that it's unjustified that it, it's just look at the fruit look at the fruit that it, it that's exactly right and and to be clear i mean there there is there is justifiable anger um that is that is raging in our nation today and then there's unjustifiable anger there there is some illegitimate uh there are some illegitimate things um 
that have made their way into at least uh, the way some of the narratives are being framed. But um, how do you de- how do you discern or determine what's legitimate or illegitimate? It goes back to I think the the fact that at some point the church has to be the arbiter of of objective truth and 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 what truth is. There has to be a center uh, for us to be able to find what is justifiable, what's unjustifiable. And in culture, we can look at the historical record. You know, some people have said, they've point blank asked me, so I hear the term systemic racism or institutional racism. Can you give an example? And to give an example of institutional racism, you have to go, first of all, to the historical record. Um, and, and so history is the receipt for what is justified. Um, right. And, and so that, that's tough for the American kind of ethos, which is we're very forward thinking. We're very, right. let, if it, the, so much happens in the news cycles, we forget what happened two months ago, much less 200 years ago. But right. we have to understand the generational impact. And there is justifiable anger but how we deal with that anger, you know, the word of God has something very clear, uh, a very clear directive for how we deal with our anger uh, and how we can uh, be vigilant to to uh, ensure that we don't become slaves to it, which unfortunately is what I believe uh, we're seeing in so many ways in our culture today. You know, one of the great aches of my heart, and I'm sure I speak for the majority of our church and a ton of people listening is exactly what you're saying. The lack of any definitive moment of repentance in our nation over the tragic multi-century history and the way that racism has literally been woven into, I'm thinking of Mark Charles, a lecture he gave at our church a couple of years ago, just line by line through the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, like naming racism, literally written into our founding documents. And it's, I mean, I read these stories in the Old Testament about how Israel would have, and and they were rare, but would have these like nationwide, the king would call for a week of prayer, fasting, sackcloth and ashes, a returning to God, a casting out of idols. I think of Josiah's like, just, you know, just robbing the temple of immorality. Like, why have we never had that as a moment? We've had these political breakthrough moments um, from, you know, Abraham Lincoln all the way to Obama to Kamala, but we've never had a national moment of repentance. I know that reparations is a controversial topic at a socioeconomic level, but just thinking biblically, it seems to me that it's it's biblical theology 101 of repentance, that you have not actually repented until you have made restitution. This is like in Exodus, it's in Leviticus. And so in the absence of that at a national level, pending a I'm praying for a sweeping move of God and God to raise up a national figure to lead us as a nation in repentance. But what can we do as the church? And I know that's a part of your work with the protest movement and civil righteousness. We've been following your example here in Portland with that. How do we participate in that repentance as churches and cities and as followers of Jesus? Like, is there anything we can do in the absence of the national leadership that we ache for and the repentance? Is there anything that we can do um, to repent? Absolutely. You know, Isaiah 61, which speaks of raising up the former desolations 
repairing the ruined cities, um, the devastations of many generations. If someone ever asked for a biblical ethic for reparation, it's Isaiah 61 Hmm. that they, meaning the former prisoners, the former slaves, will rebuild the ancient ruins. And we were all former slaves in sin, right? And so we've, we've been liberated into this, this, um, this mandate and this mission for the reconciliation of all things. And this very clearly, Isaiah 61 very clearly speaks to, obviously the context is Israel, but if we were to appropriate, appropriate it for what we're, we're talking about, we're talking about the reparation or the repair of ruined cities. So there's a physical uh, consequence to the pain of what's happened in history and the devastations of many generations. And, and so I think we have to broaden the reparation conversation beyond just financial, you know, um, and we have to look at what are the multitude of ways and what are the multitude of things that need to be reconciled and repaired? And we are the people of truth. Jesus is truth. We're the people of truth, the offspring of truth, the arbiters of truth, the stewards of reconciliation. He's handed it to us. And so I really believe, you know, in, in, um, in post-apartheid South Africa, Nelson Mandela and Bishop Desmond Tutu initiated uh, what was called Truth and Reconciliation mm-hmm. Commissions, these TRCs. And these things have happened all over the world in nations that have uh, endured civil wars um, from Australia with some of the Aboriginal peoples to uh, Uganda and Rwanda and the various tragedies that have happened there. Uh, TRCs have happened for, you know, there there are many precedents in nations for uh, national truth and reconciliation and, uh, initiatives, um, which are ultimately about dealing with the uh, psychological devastations and discovering what 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 devastations are there by hearing from the people in order to then move into whatever uh, whatever institutional or legislative uh, actions need to take to repair the devastation. So, you know, it's one thing for us to talk about um, reparations uh, from a legislative standpoint or a financial standpoint. First, the first level of reparation, I believe, should be led by you and I. It should be led by local churches. Uh, What if the church, the body of Christ begin to say, you know what, we are not going to allow um, secular institutions to define what truth and reconciliation is when both of those are biblical terms. We, as the body of Christ, are going to open our, our, our lives and open our facilities and our communities and our hearts to create spaces for finding truth meaning this is a, what what if what if a month uh you know one month of of the year or maybe three months or maybe 
<laughs> 12 months out of the year, but one, one time a month, every church in America said, we're going to open our sanctuaries or our parking lots, depending on what COVID's doing, uh, you know, and we're going to host um, times for people in, in our communities or in our cities to come and share their experiences. And we're going to have someone who records their testimonies. Hmm. You no, know, people just want to be heard. There's something yeah. cathartic about telling your story. And so te- having a valid place where stories are heard, pain is being, being shared and being validated just by the very presence of people who are willing to listen. That goes a long way. That's what happened in South Africa. That's what has not happened here in America. And, mm. you know, when it comes to some of the monuments, Confederate monuments and, and different controversies surrounding them, some of the controversy could be dealt with and some of the conflict could be avoided by simply cities opening their, their city halls and saying, let's, let's find out the truth about this monument. What has, how did it get here? And let's tell the truth about what, what this person actually represented then let's discover the descendants in this community that were negatively impacted by the actions of this person who's been memorialized. And then let's hear the, let's, let's create a space for bi-directional listening and let's hear from the people who are the descendants of this person or the descendants of the people who had the statue erected. And I think there's something about restoring dignity um, first through hearing in our cities and discovering truth that then can lead us to the next step of, okay, now everyone's had a chance to be heard. And now what can we do to reconcile this together? Can we make a decision on whether to remove this monument or not? Does that make sense? And I think the church can begin to lead the way and not wait on government officials to lead the way in that arena. If we'll take seriously the work of beginning to address uh, what's going on psychologically and emotionally, and ultimately, as you and I know, spiritually in our communities first, and begin try to address the the change in that way. Then we can lead to some practical, innovative ways to repair or to bring forth the reparation that's needed in a given city, community, or indeed uh, nation. Yeah, that is. I, I, yes, can you? mentor us in how to do that in Portland. I mean, what a beautiful and compelling vision. I, I want to respect your time because I'm I'm sitting here realizing I could spend the rest of the day just asking you questions. <laughs> so let me narrow it down to like just two or three more. Uh, you know, as we're on this note, I, th- I thought it was really interesting, your Isaiah reference, you know, because when I think of biblical theology reparations, my mind goes to Exodus and Leviticus and the very practical, like, you know, you steal your neighbor's ox you don't just say, sorry, I stole your ox. You know, you say, here's the money back or the ox back with, you know, a fifth or whatever, based on whatever part of the Torah you're reading. And, but, but you, it's interesting, you ground that in Isaiah and your insight that it was former slaves that were the ones to rebuild the ruined cities. Would you talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, as is right and fitting, most of this conversation around racial reconciliation or systemic injustice is about the past and all that we've yet to deal with and about the present, all of the open wound, the tension, the multi-generational trauma, the polarization. But not a lot is said, other than from some of my secular utopian friends, about 
the future. And when I hear you talk about the future and specifically, you know, one of the things I love about you is you're in this space, but you, you also situate in the charismatic stream. So we, sure. we have that, like we're, we're with you in that. And, and so like that prophetic like vision that you have, I would just love to hear you riff about what you see as the prophetic destiny, not just on the church, but specifically on the African-American community and African-American followers of Jesus in America. What, what's, what's their destiny? What's your destiny? And, and how do we who are white, how do we pray, support, laud, honor, humble, you know? What's the destiny that you see? What's, what's, what do you see over the horizon in your prophetic sense? Well, you know, um, that's such a, such a loaded question. So I'll just, I'll try to, to answer it, um, this way, you know, a, a mentor of mine once said to me, JT, he said, you were made for the nations. And again, I, I was grow, I, I was raised in a very small Southern town, um, not in the hood, but you know, the whole town was the, so to speak. Um, so coming from my little world, um, to think, you mean somebody in, in, in Saudi Arabia, you mean I have purpose there, they're, they're waiting on me. And I knew when he said it, it, it wasn't just one of those nice, let me, let me give you this generic, Hey, you're a leader. You know, it was, right. it was no, from the Lord, there was something, there was truth in what he said. There are nations waiting on you. And I begin to think about this idea. Uh, it's not even an idea. It's a biblical principle that without vision, um, people die. Without vision, people cast off restraint. And, you know, one thing that I could catch flack for saying, but the truth is the truth. When we look at communities that uh, I served in um, where the average income is $4,000 a year and gang violence grips, there, there's hardly any home that isn't touched by it. We see death and lawlessness as two major marks of predominantly black and minority communities in this nation. And so if there's a death problem, is the problem really, is the great, is the great injustice what legislative uh, uh, things have been, have been, have gone before to create the, the situation is the greatest injustice, uh, how the black men are being sentenced in the criminal justice system, or is the greatest injustice a lack of vision? If there's a death problem and if there's a lawlessness problem, then really it's a, it's, it's revealing a, a, a deficit of vision. And so when this man told me that there were nations waiting on me and I believed it, I began to possess myself in a way that I never had. I began to believe it and began to live with this, this uh, sense of purpose and destiny. Um, and so I say that to say that we have to find ourselves in the biblical narrative. And in Zephaniah 3, God is speaking a promise to Jerusalem. And he says, um, he says to Israel that he's going to restore them. 
And he says he's going to purify, in Zephaniah 3, verse 9, I'll purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. And then it says, from beyond the rivers of Cush or Ethiopia, from beyond the rivers of East Ethiopia, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. Then on that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame. And the Lord began to open my eyes to uh, some really profound parallels between the journey of the Jewish uh, scattering, the Jewish diaspora, and the the journey of the African diaspora mm-hmm. around the world. Right. They are so similar. Our journeys historically have been so similar that, in fact, there are some sects of people, in particular the Black Hebrew Israelites, who believe that the true Israel are are African peoples, um, that we're the real Jerusalem, uh, is right. the real Hebrews, but that's a whole nother, a whole nother discussion. But there's but, so many similarities that people come to that conclusion. So many similarities. And even down to, I grew up in the missionary Baptist church, the black missionary Baptist tradition, and you can't find a black church, uh, in the, in America that doesn't have songs about Zion, uh, and even the names of many of those those churches are Mount Canaan Baptist and uh, Jordan River Baptist Church and Mount Zion Baptist. You know, and so we have what's called this. You know, in Black theology, in, there, there's an Exodus paradigm or an exilic paradigm where we're so, we're we're sojourners just passing through, or we're in exile. You know, uh, like Israel. Uh, in the desert. And so it's it's just very interesting to see these parallels. And so when I read this scripture, it says, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my scattered ones will bring me an offering. Then Jerusalem will not be put to shame. So he's clearly not talking about the scattered Jews because he says, I'm going to, I'm going to bring from Ethiopia or from Africa worshipers who will bring offerings to me. And there's so much in this, but when we see uh, eschatologically the nations worshiping around the throne of God, if if all of human history is going to culminate in this glorious eternal worship song around the throne of God that John sees in the book of Revelation. And a society of justice and righteousness. In a society of justice and righteousness, the song is going to be, you have become our song and our salvation. Trump couldn't bring justice. Biden couldn't bring justice. Obama couldn't bring justice. Nobody could do it. But the only one that was worthy to do it was you, you alone. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to loose it, to, to break the scroll and loose its seals. There's this, there's this glorious crescendo of eternal worship that we're all going to, 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 to bring before the Lord. And Isaiah talks about the kings and the priests of nations bringing their offerings into Jerusalem. And so when we think in, in context of everything that's happened, the pain of our past and the pain of our present is ultimately there to produce a song in us. And it, and that's exactly what it did in the, in the bowels of chattel slavery, in the deep, uh, uh, sweaty 
nasty fields of Louisiana, my great, 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 great grandparents were hoeing the ground with these crude tools and the slave master, uh, uh, slave quartermaster on the horse had the whip and he's beating them, but they had a song that arose out of the pain. They could not protest. They could not march in the streets. They could not lobby in the, the places of power, but they could lift up a sound and God literally gave them the communication like a divine uh, supernatural gift from heaven. He gave them the ability to create uh, not only communication among one another when they would sing uh, uh, Swing Low Sweet Chariot or Take Me Down by the River. They were t- literally communicating, hey, tonight, meet me down by the river. We out, <laughs> we out, you know. But so it was supernatural communication, the song of the Lord. But it was oh. also intercession. They yeah. were they were filling it's lament the, the, and, the yeah. lament. They, it was a sound that was arising before heaven, and not one of those prayers, not one of those songs, went unanswered. God eventually allowed those bowls of prayer in heaven to be filled and turned over and poured out in one generation. Boom, they were free. But but all that to say is that the Lord, the redemptive gifting. Of, of the pain of our history is that the Lord produced a people of the sound. He produced a Judah people. When you hear a black person sing, not, not all black people can sing, but a lot of us can. And when you hear it, you, the reason why it sounds unique is not a, a black supremacist thing uh, that we're more talented. It's that we have inherited a sound that was forged in the fires of slavery. And that sound is going to lead the nations in the worship song of the Lord in the day of his return and eternally. You know, it's the wisdom of God that he would forge a people that have a unique gift to actually lead the nations in worship. And we see that whether it's the worship of Jesus or the worship of idols and and money and, and sex and drugs or whatever, but, you know, out of the slave, the music of slavery came the most popular uh, forms of pop culture music today. Uh, right. And in a sense, you know, the, the number one consumers of hip hop music are suburban white folks, you know, so it's like <laughs> God is not good. to mention rock and roll and R and B and jazz and blues. I mean, all of it. So I, I believe I, I'm giving you a super long answer, but uh, I believe that our destiny, God tells a story throughout the Bible, you know, over and over again. And you and I understand that to be types and shadows, but I believe our journey has been a type, uh, even our, our brokenness, our, our pain, uh, even the condition of our communities really mirrors the, the, the condition of the Hebrew people biblically and the restoration. There's a promise of restoration to Israel and God promises the same restoration. I believe, I believe our journey, you know, Jewish people uniquely identify with the African-American or, or the African diaspora, but uniquely the African-American journey because they see their story in our story and historically oppressed people groups around the world uniquely mm-hmm. identify with us, which is why when Ferguson happened and even when George Floyd happened, there are protests happening all over the world. Right. It's happening in the middle of America, but but black and brown people around the world uniquely identify with our journey. And I think it's because God is positioning us 
to be uh, not only a physical representation of the restoration that he's bringing and the reconciliation of all things that he's bringing when he comes, but also to uniquely be positioned for influence in the nations uh, to help finish the Great Commission. I believe the greatest missions movement the world has never seen uh, is going to come from African peoples and African-American peoples who are fully ignited uh, and fully envisioned to carry the gospel into the hardest and darkest places in the nations of the earth and to be willing to love not our lives even unto death, which is why I believe that we're burying so many African-American men. Uh, you know, they're filled with, uh, the graveyards are filled with guys who look like me and the prisons are filled with guys who look like me because Satan is afraid of what would happen uh, if we get activated and willing to die for the gospel. Thank you for that, Jonathan. That I don't really want to say anything after that. I want to just go on an hour-long walk in silence, you know. I'm sure I would imagine that some of our listeners will like what you said about minority communities and the role of systemic injustice versus the role of vision, and others will really not like that at all. But I imagine no one listening would not find a, a deep tug in the heart over this vision of the destiny of the African-American peoples, in particular in the kingdom of God and in the future, not only of our nation, but of the nations. And I mean, can I just say, we have so, we meaning people who look like me, have so much to learn from you and so many others just about how to read the Bible. There's a book that a ton of people in our church are passing around right now, that new book, Reading Well Black. And that's one of the main takeaways is just the perspective uh, of someone with, with your lineage versus someone with my lineage, the way that you read the text, the way that you find yourself in the text and carry that forward into the destiny and the call of God. It's beautiful. Thank you. So out of respect for your time, uh, to end, you know, we this interesting moment. Uh, Portland is a very politically homogenous city. So the vast majority of people would be left. And it's just a question of like, how far left are you, you know? Sure. And um, our church is not a progressive church at all in theology. And so I'm sure it's tempered a little bit at that. But, you know, theology and policy around, you know, borders or whatever are very different things. Or, well, or maybe they're not. That's a separate podcast. But, um, you know, most all that to say, most of the vast majority of people in our church would be like 110% on board for how do we end systemic racism? How do we work? They would be all in for any protest or protest or anything in between. But our nation as a whole is like, in this unbelievable moment of political polarization, the way that Silicon Valley and the digital algorithms have turned people into these tribal hyper echo chambers farther and farther, even from a baseline of facts sure. has, and the church has been divided as well. And this has been so disheartening. And I know it's just been really hard. And even the last month or two has been really hard for a lot of people in our church, just hearing stories from either the news or from extended family members of, uh, of of people's perspectives on, say, the Capitol riots, that it's just hard to fathom how somebody could say that or think that as a follower of Jesus. And I know other people were feeling the same way about people on the left, you know, all through 2020. So to end, 
what would you say? Let's. I don't want to stereotype right and left, but let's say you're sitting with somebody who is a who is a Christian, who is a follower of Jesus, but who is on the conservative kind of Republican on the right kind of side, who who maybe really struggles with a lot of this conversation at all. What would you say to them? And then in turn, what would you say to the more Portlander kind of Christian? Like what warnings or, or invitations or wisdom as we kind of end? Would you say here? as somebody who is literally living it as a follower of Jesus in the middle of this, literally in the middle of this, what just parting words? Yeah. You know, I was praying about what the Lord um, was saying, you know, to Portland. And, and the first thing that, that came to me was Galatians chapter five, which says for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And I would say to the conservative Christian, um, there is a temptation to pull away and to dig in to your perspective um, and to find echo chambers of people who believe like you to validate what it is you're feeling. But at the end of the day, I believe that the Lord is using these issues to reveal who is his and who is not. We're in a kind of a sheep and goats moment. And the sheep are going to be those who are willing to let God cut you. Hmm. Let God put you in an uncomfortable conversation. Be willing to come to the table and stay at the table with people that you do not understand or may even adamantly disagree with. Don't run into the safety of, of, of your tribe or your, your political um, uh, allegiance and allow God to make you uncomfortable and stay in that place. And if you're a conservative and you're sitting at a table or sitting on a Zoom call or what, whatever context it is with someone who, who's uh, of a different persuasion than you, um, ask the Lord Lord, what are you speaking? I, I, I know I hear a lot of different things, but is there anything that you are saying through this person that I need to understand and allow God to deal with you there? Um, and then in the same way, I would say to, to, to the progressive, to the liberal uh, person, do not become a slave. Uh, do not submit to the yoke of slavery. It was actually Galatians 4 that says, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And this was this was this this um, example of a slave woman and her son. And it says the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. We have this inheritance and the culture. There's this cultural yoke of identity politics and this cultural yoke of identifying with a certain camp that is keeping us from living in the realm of freedom that I believe that God is, God is actually confronting every single one of us to bring us into a higher realm of living in a higher realm of freedom. 
And, um, so I would say, you know, this, this, uh, tendency to believe that we are in some space, uh, some kind of, uh, place of elite revelation. If we understand the pain of the black community or can articulate the frustration or the fear of the immigrant community, or we're engaging in some sort of, uh, activism, there's this sense of elitism, uh, when God actually has just as much issue, I believe God is making uh, a point to reveal that he has an issue with all of our issues and that we all have issues. And so the humility uh, for us would be to uh, stay in this place, which Galatians says, here's the key to not becoming a slave. <laughs> here's the key to not becoming a slave to your emotions or to your political allegiances or alliances. But I say, verse 16, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Um, and it goes, the works of the flesh, it, it, it of course talks about sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, all these things. But here's the key, strife and fits of anger, dissensions and divisions. If, you, if, if we're given, no matter what side, of the aisle you're on, if your alliance with the ideals of that side leads you to the place where you are, you are dealing with fits of anger, uh, where you can't get to sleep at night thinking about how angry you are over Trump or over this. If you can't get to sleep at night thinking about how angry you are that Biden won, or maybe you believe he stole the, le the election, whatever that is, then it's very, very tempting or very possible that you are living in the flesh and you get online to get, uh, uh, to read articles that flee the flesh and enrage your, your position or enrage or inflame your anger even more. If, if you cannot walk or, or worship, you know, when, when churches reopen, if they haven't opened yet in your, your city, if you say, well, man, I'm not going back to that church. Cause I know there are people in there that voted for Trump. Well, I'm not going to that church because I know there are people there that voted for Biden. That's dissension and division. And you're choosing the flesh rather than the spirit. And we have to be vigilant, vigilant in this hour uh, for God to help us live life by the spirit and uh, maintain the bond of peace. Jonathan, can I ask you to just pray over us as we go? I receive that on behalf of our church. And I know a lot of other people are listening as well, but would you, would you, I don't know if bless us is the right word because I feel like the call right now is for repentance more than to blessing, but would you pray for us to end our conversation? Absolutely. Father, I thank you for this conversation and for all of those who are listening. I thank you that you are slow to anger. You're rich in mercy and you are abounding in love. Father, I pray for great grace to be upon, upon everyone listening today. I thank you that with unveiled faces, we can stand before you and we can come to you as little children and cry out, Abba, Father, we have need of you. I thank you for the moments in this podcast where you began to lay a finger on those things that would cause us to choose to live by the flesh than 
as opposed to by the Spirit. Lord, those things that you're highlighting in me and in us, Lord, that need to be conformed into your image. Lord, those areas that need to be reconciled fully to the way of the cross and the way of the kingdom. Father, I pray that you would grant power to this community to live as ministers of reconciliation and peacemakers in our generation. I pray, God, that you would cause the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, to become the, the very currency of the atmosphere of your people in Portland. And may that translate, God, to uh, the streets, and may it translate to the corridors of power. May it translate, Father, to communities. We pray for a spirit of renewal and reformation. We pray for innovation for this spiritual community, that they would be at the forefront, or that you would would release blueprints and architecture from the very uh, storehouses of heaven, that they might go and build the city of God within the city of Portland and beyond in every city represented by those who are listening. We thank you, Father, for causing us now to be your hands and feet and giving us grace to live and to love like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan Tremaine. We honor you. We are so grateful. Thank you for your time and way more than your time for you saying yes to Jesus' call in your life and the wisdom he's imbued in you. We're, we're grateful, and, uh, and we are hard at work, those of you listening. We'll see if it happens, but to get uh, Jonathan on the ground out here in 2021, whether that's later in the spring or summer or whenever, based on your schedule and on COVID and all of that, but it would be such an honor to host you in our city and to prayer walk downtown with you and to have you speak into the life of our church. And I want you to preach at our church so bad. I want that. So (laughs) may it be so. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for your time and peace to you.